All right, it's Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we take a look at the latest legal stories of the week. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Not in quarantine, so it's great to be here. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, as we monitor the situation very closely. Now, I, I was always struck by the enormous scale of the measures that are being undertaken in Hubei Province, Wuhan City, as well as surrounding cities in the People's Republic of China. Here in Canada, if we try to quarantine, I don't know, an entire province, that'd be 5 million people here in BC or 15 million in Ontario. Um, I don't even think we could do that because we can't track everybody. We can't know when people are moving or trying to drive their cars down the highway or buying plane tickets or train tickets or boat tickets. We don't even have that capacity, even if our laws did allow it. But what do our laws allow in terms of quarantine or possibly infected people coming back from Canada being blocked? How does it all work? Well, uh, our laws permit quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Uh, and there's legislation both federal, called the Quarantine Act, mm. um, and provincially, we've got the Public Health Act. And both of those have fairly sweeping powers. Now, the idea of, the, of quarantining people in the Quarantine Act in Canada goes back a really long way. Uh, the first time we had a Quarantine Act was 1872, not far off of uh, <laughs> as far back as these things could go in Canada. Uh, and the current iteration of the Quarantine Act uh, got royal assent in 2005, and it was uh, spurred on by the SARS outbreak in 2003. Two so years post-SARS, yeah, we, we, we updated our Quarantine Act, so here we are. Um, and that act provides for some uh, pretty sweeping powers. Now, here's one that people should know about, is it's actually one that imposes an obligation already on people. Okay. Uh, it's under the heading Travelers, and it's uh, paragraph uh, 15. And it provides that there's a duty to disclose communicable diseases if you're coming back into Canada as a traveler. And it says this, Any traveler who has reasonable grounds to suspect that they have or might have a communicable disease listed in the schedule, presumably this is listed, yeah. <laughs> uh, or are infected with... Uh, uh, various things, uh, or we're in close proximity with persons who have and are likely to have a communicable disease. Uh, again, listed, once again, hopefully this has been listed, um, has an obligation to disclose that to a screening officer or quarantine officer. So the point is that if you're coming into Canada uh, and you have reasonable grounds to suspect you have a communicable disease, you have an obligation to speak up and say so. You are not permitted to sneak in coughing and wheezing after your brief sojourn to Wuhan, talk, <laughs> you better I, speak up. I, I have pulled up the schedule. It's alphabetized. Active yes. pulmonary tuberculosis, anthrax, Argentine hemorrhagic fever, Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, botulism, Brazilian hemorrhagic fever, cholera, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, diphtheria, Ebola hemorrhagic fever, Lassa fever. It goes on and on and on. So I guess you just have to be aware of this list and you have an obligation to, to disclose if you have reasonable grounds to believe you either have it or have come into close contact with someone who had it. Yeah, speak up. I, I suppose we'll call... Uh We'll call section 15 the common sense provision. When you think you've picked up a little bit of Ebola on your recent trip and you're coming back into Canada, you know, maybe tell somebody, don't just slip on in and head off to the uh, Canucks game or something. They've right? got smallpox on this list. I thought that was functionally extinct. <laughs> anyway. Well, if you suspect you have smallpox, <laughs> speak up. You have up. an obligation to inform the officer. <laughs> now, if you speak up or even if you don't speak up and you're coming in, 
somebody who's a screening officer would have authority to quarantine somebody. You know, if somebody's coming in on the flight from Wuhan, they land in Vancouver to refuel, they're coughing and wheezing, there is actually authority for the person at the airport, screening officer, to isolate the person so that they don't head off to some public event and infect other people. Uh, If you refuse that, there's an authority for the police to arrest you. Now, there's a bad call you don't want to get. Uh, as that patrol officer, <laughs> the guy with Ebola seems to have fled the Vancouver airport. Can you mind coming and tackling him and bringing him back? That's a very, very bad call. How'd you like to be duty counsel when that one comes in? Yeah, I think the we'll Ebola the, guy. I think we'll be on the other side of the glass. Right? Yep. The, the resistant Ebola guy who doesn't want to listen to any directions. Um, Happily in Canada, there are some provisions for um, a review of review yeah. in court where somebody's going to have been. Uh, detained, you know, if somebody, for example, or uh, doesn't like the fact they're being required to remain in the military base for 14 days after they get back from Wuhan on the evacuation flight, uh, there could be a process for a review in court about that. I, I suspect that's not going on in Wuhan itself. No, uh, I don't think sticking your hand up and asking for the court to look into the matters is getting you far in China. Now, here are some other interesting powers in this uh, the same act, that uh, Quarantine Act. Yes. There are powers to prohibit entry into Canada, uh, and they are very sweeping. And interestingly, there are some exceptions that are lacking uh, that would cause some question about how this would interface with uh, your constitutional right, uh, pursuant to Section 6 of the Charter. Well, maybe that's a good place to start. Hmm. So you, you've got a constitutional right. It's the mobility of citizens, Section 6. Yes. It says every citizen, that's important, uh, of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. Yeah. Now, that's, I think, a really important constitutional provision. Uh, and I must say, I reflect on Section 6, maybe in a way only a lawyer is, mm-hmm. when visiting other countries where you frequently need to ask permission to leave, right? Even uh, some sort of Western countries, you sort of you show up at the border and there's an outgoing border check where you show up with your card and, you know, please, kind sir, may I leave this country? Uh, and you appreciate that the answer may be yes or no, right? Yeah. Um, you should note that, right? When you are leaving Canada, when you pull up to the Peace Arch crossing, there's no Canadian official standing there saying, who are you and where do you think you're going? The only person you're speaking to uh, is the person who is the representative of the country you're going into. Yeah. That's really important. Uh, now, that brings us back to prohibiting people from entering Canada. Now, there are some particular powers that are referred to as emergency orders and they can be made initially by a minister federal minister uh, or after a period of 14 days it's got to be confirmed or the order can be made by the governor and council and it can prohibit um, the entry into Canada of any class of persons who have been to a foreign country or a specified part of a foreign country if the governor and council is of the opinion that, in the list of things, mm-hmm. there's an outbreak of a communicable disease in the foreign country, yes. B, the introduction or spread of the disease would pose an imminent and severe risk to public health in Canada. That's a judgment call. C, the entry of members of that class of persons into Canada may introduce or contribute to the spread or communicable disease in Canada. And D, no reasonable alternative to prevent the introduction or spread of the disease are available. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, so that's... those are all the criteria. There are certainly some things to be argued about there, right? Yeah, yeah. But broadly speaking, there is authority for the initially the minister or the governor and council to say things like, 
you know, sorry, this disease uh, has ravaged uh, this country or this place. Sorry, nobody from there can come in. Now, that, of course, is going to butt up against Section 6. What happens to the Canadian who is the hapless traveler to the place where there is the terrible fill-in-the-blank Ebola break, outbreak mm. who shows up and says, oh, my God, let me in. I'm yeah. Canadian. Don't le- don't leave me there. It's not going to happen, but just, right. yeah, for, for right? yeah. There, there would be a tension between that power to refuse entry to anyone, including citizens, and the Canadian citizens saying, hey, let me back in. Um, so there are really broad powers there and my expectation is that those things aren't completely in the abstract at the moment no doubt those are the kind of things which are considered uh when there are all these reports of things i just noticed measles is on the schedule i wouldn't expect it to be there but an ordinary measles it seems is one of them now the coronavirus the wuhan variant is not on this schedule so would it have to be added or what would happen my advice would be you probably want to update the schedule. Now, if what's online is current, of course, it's not always current. True, it might not be. It might not be. But if they haven't added that to the list, it would seem to me you probably want to, in addition to the obvious moral obligation when you show up, when you think you have the coronavirus, probably it makes sense to add it to the list. So, yeah, you're actually required to say so uh, and not just slip into the country. Fascinating. That's the federal regime. That's not it. Uh, we like to belt and suspenders everything. So we also have in BC the Public Health Act, uh, which has a whole bunch of other uh, powers, some of them very interesting. One of them, for example, and this is Section 26 of the British Columbia Public Health Act, mm-hmm. permits the Minister of Health to designate a place as a quarantine facility if the minister reasonably believes that the temporary use of the place for the purpose of isolating or detaining Infected persons is necessary to protect public health. And then the person who has control of the place, designated as a quarantine facility, be, must provide the place to the minister or medical health officer. So any place, you could have the minister say, look, there's a terrible outbreak. I'm sorry, your hotel is the quarantine facility. Uh, everyone else out, uh, that's where people are going to be staying. So there's the power to take over private property to turn them into a place of quarantine. There are other powers uh, that are afforded uh, by that piece of provincial legislation. Here's another one. This doesn't require the list. It says this, Section 50, a person must not willingly cause a health hazard or act in a manner that the person knows or ought to know will cause a health hazard. So that would also, I, I expect, capture somebody who thinks they had the Ebola virus and decides it's a good idea to head off to the cocktail party to start double dipping in the... Uh, you know, the chip bowl or whatever, right? Um, so yes. you're, you're caught by that as well, so speak up. Uh, and then there is also provision to uh, order people uh, to undertake various preventative measures, which is an interesting thing. So it's this, emergency preventative measures, section 56, a provincial health officer or medical health officer may in an emergency uh, order a person to take preventative measures within the meaning of section 16, including ordering the person to take preventative measures the person could otherwise avoid making or objecting to under this section. So those include things like this. If there is an emergency, and I always find that language funny because you often see on the news various mayors and officials coming out saying, I do declare an emergency. And I often think to myself, well, what is the real effect of coming out and saying, I do declare? Uh, but in this case, if, there's a, if you declare an emergency, you can order people to do things like be treated or vaccinated, like it or not. Get in there and get that measles vaccine. I don't care if you don't want it. 
uh, get in there and take it. Um, you can order a person to wear a type of clothing or protective equipment. So you can say you must put a mask on, for example. You could order somebody to wear protective clothing, take off clothing. Um, you can order all sorts of things uh, to take preventative medication, to wash, undergo disinfection or decontamination. So there are really broad and really sweeping powers that are available. Um, also, interestingly, there are some exceptions in an emergency, things like there's an exemption from the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, and I suspect that would be there so that, for example, if you had typhoid Mary and you've identified her, you could yell out, there she is, this is who it is, uh, you know, stop, <laughs> don't show up at the party, she's catering, bad idea. Whereas otherwise you might run into difficulties releasing the private medical information about the infectious person who's decided to go out and continue shaking hands and making friends. So, and, and again, in an emergency, there's some power to do that. Also, in both these acts, hmm. when you look at the sort of the broad array of things that are emergency powers, they are very broad. And yeah. no doubt they need to be very broad because when you draft these things, you don't know what the next infective agent is going to be or what you might need to require people to do, be that put on sunglasses, get some sort of a disinfection, uh, remove your clothes or put on a suit. You don't want to try to in advance pick out all the various uh, things that would be required. Uh, and when you look at the very broad language used, um, you know, it would be a real stretch to say, for example, we wish to quarantine a whole city. You'd really be stretching some of the language about things that one might do in an emergency. Uh, but uh, hopefully we uh, we don't come to that. I, I must say, watching the, the response to the sort of Chinese decision to uh, quarantine off, you know, a city initially of 11 million people, you can imagine what the response would be in a country, let's say, you know, the U.S. made the decision we've ordered everyone to stay in Chicago. You know, what is that looking like? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing, I must say, on one level, when you look at the reports from China, that broadly speaking, people seem to have been complying with that, right? There, there don't seem to be people fighting with the, you know, police at the, abort, you know, the yeah. <laughs> place where they're blocked off. Broadly speaking, it looks like people are kind of staying home and doing what they should, and yeah. Um, you know, that's a, uh, I think, a notable thing. I don't know you're getting that in uh, every place. Maybe that's sort of, a, there's some cultural factors there or the realization of how the state might respond if somebody stuck up their hand saying, hey, I'd like a court application or I'm making a run for it. I, I rather suspect that's not going over well in uh, China. But when you in Canada look at the Quarantine Act or the Public Health Act, uh, you know, you may well get that, uh, if you're the police constable, very unhappy phone call to go and tackle that Ebola victim who's uh, making a uh, run for it from the Royal Jubilee Hospital or whatever it might be. So let's, right. ho let's hope it doesn't come to that. All right, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. Breaking news, a news release hit my inbox approximately 240 seconds ago transforming ICBC to deliver lower rates, better benefits, Ministry of the Attorney General. And I quote, government is transforming ICBC by removing lawyers and legal costs from the system to reduce rates and substantially increase care benefits, making public auto insurance work for British Columbians again. This looks a whole lot like no-fault insurance. Michael Mulligan, we're just digesting this as it breaks live. Any thoughts on what we're seeing? Yeah, that, that's certainly what it looks like, is sort of the NDP trying again with the uh, a no-fault approach. They, of course, uh, tried that a number of years ago and ultimately ran up on the rocks, and it didn't get implemented. Uh, the reason why it didn't succeed last time and why I suspect they're going to wind up with some pretty serious political headwinds this time 
um, is people broadly don't like the idea that somebody could be completely reckless, terrible driver, crash into you, uh, suffer no consequence themselves and be treated the same way you would. Uh, people generally don't find that to be a fair model. And there's no doubt you can save some money not sorting those issues out. If we say, for example, we don't care whether the person who hit you was impaired or driving dangerously, and we say we're going to spend no time sorting that out, everyone will just be treated the same, there is no doubt you can save some money in not making that decision. Uh, but that has fairness implications. And I think people don't like the idea that somebody who's, you know, for example, was drunk and ran into you and you become a quadriplegic uh, is going to be treated exactly the same way you would in terms of getting benefits. And that person will suffer, other than any criminal consequence, have no personal financial obligations to deal with any of that. That's, I think, one of the problems. The other problem is people have some experience with systems like that. If anyone's been through, for example, uh, dealing with uh, what's now called WorkSafe BC, but yes. a WCB claim, mm -hmm. that's basically the sort of treatment one can expect, right? Which is essentially uh, hoping that an unreviewable bureaucracy is going to treat you okay when you have uh, no independent way to sort out how you're being treated. People don't much like that either. Um, so I suspect for those reasons, this may be very unpopular when people realize what it's going to mean for their lives. My practical advice to people would be this. You might want to consider um, purchasing some private disability insurance if you don't want to uh, run the risk of being plowed down by somebody uh, and having absolutely no meaningful uh, recourse other than accepting whatever uh, a government insurance company wishes to uh, do for you. And I think that's really at the core uh, of why this proposal last time was so unpopular. People don't like the idea that innocent people who are injured are going to be treated the same as somebody who's morally culpable, did something dangerous and hurt you. I think people broadly like the idea that people should be responsible for their actions and don't like the idea that we should all live in a uh, fault-free, uh, no-fault world where it just doesn't matter how you behave. In a previous discussion, we talked about uh, breaching the standard of care of a reasonably prudent driver or having a criminal offense, voiding one's insurance, making one financially responsible for the care of anyone that they injure. Would movement to a system such as this nullify that, or what would happen in that scenario? Likely, yes. Likely, it would then make no difference. So, for example, the uh, the local case that got attention with the uh, driver of the Mercedes who hit the young girl who's going to require a lifetime of care. Under our current model, the driver of the Mercedes is going to have personal financial responsibility for having caused the accident um, and will have to pay for that. Under a no-fault model, it doesn't really matter whether you're texting and driving or drunk or speeding or doing anything else. We don't spend any money sorting out who's responsible for that. Uh, we just say, fine, uh, you know, whatever degree of uh, help we're going to provide to the young girl, we'll provide the same to the uh, driver of the other vehicle who caused the accident. And in fact, we'll spend no time sorting out who caused the accident. That has other broad implications, I suppose, in terms of things like incentivizing people to behave in a responsible fashion. If you bear no personal responsibility for harm you cause, it's going to de-incentivize people from behaving in a safe fashion. It's they like if you said... 
you know, ladder manufacturers are no longer responsible for injuries caused by their ladders, guess what? You're going to have a lot less safe equipment or whatever it might be if you have no personal responsibility. They would still be subject to criminal sanctions where appropriate, though, criminal punishments where appropriate, though, yes? Yes, that's okay. true. Okay. Uh, but the, the financial part of in it is significant. In terms of paying the person you hurt. Okay, yeah, I see. that's I see. right. You okay. could. It would be, broadly speaking, these sort of changes would be good news. Uh, if you're the sort of person who might cause an accident, and bad news if you're somebody who winds up getting injured in an accident. Um, right. It would mean that you would have uh, no meaningful recourse against the person who caused it, uh, and you would be subject to whatever the uh, government entity wishes to do for you, sort of like everyone is now subject to WCB uh, sort of uh, treatment in the event that you're uh, injured driving. Well, Michael Mulligan, we always appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight on this program. In this case, uh, we got this release at 10.49 a.m., and uh, you and I were talking about it just over two minutes later or three minutes later on the air. Anything else you want to touch on? We've got about 90 seconds left for today. Well, I guess I would say the other thing I'd say about this, this is the sort of thing. There, there's been some, I think, sort of rumors in the air about whether an election might be forthcoming. This could be the sort of issue uh, which uh, might be uh, a trigger for that. Um, last time, the, when the NDP proposed a no-fault system, that was tremendously unpopular uh, amongst uh, groups including the uh, disabled community, people who were injured by uh, drivers. Uh, and it may be uh, that uh, this is the sort of thing which is an inflection point. Uh, there may be some questions to be asked. For example, you know, what does Andrew Weaver and the remainder of the Green Party think about this model? Is this something they want to tie themselves to? Um, and uh, is it the sort of thing which uh, might produce an election? I suspect they will be asked that question momentarily if they have not already had it asked of them in the last 10 minutes or so. Michael Mulligan, thank you for your time as always. Thank you. All right, take care.